Matthew 19, 5 through 6. And said, Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right off the bat, in this short little passage, Jesus already makes some things incredibly clear. And he doesn't make them clear by telling us in his own words, well, he does tell us in his own words because he is God, he wrote the Bible, but he goes back to the beginning. He ties this to creation. He ties uh, uh, marriage, the setup for it, the permanent state of it, to how God designed it, and then emphasizes what therefore God has joined together let no man separate. The foundation of marriage, the foundation of uh, this relationship, this bond, this joining of the two is rooted, is steadfastly established in God. So whatever the definitions, the edges, the intent, Whatever marriage is, it's immutable. It cannot be changed. It is defined by God. It is joined together by God. Everything about it is rooted in God himself. We need to be sure of this. And this, this message is actually mostly about marriage. Because understanding what God says about marriage, the positive, the truth, what is right, gives us 99% of the framework we need to know to understand why everything else is wrong. Once you understand the truth, the error is easy to see. We talked about that a little bit when we looked at 2 Peter. We have to be rooted in the truth before we can understand error. And over the past year, I've gotten a lot of experience that I never thought I would get in explaining the Bible's view of marriage and human sexuality and what the, the correct view is. Uh, and when you are straightforward with what the truth is, when you do not try and sugarcoat it, when you do not try and uh, hide it, when you do not try and qualify it, run this little rabbit trail of, well, this, uh, well, I'm not saying that, well, um, I don't want to. No, when you go straight to the truth and you clearly define what the truth is, I didn't have a single person this year in an online setting of all things, where people are more willing to engage in argument and be offended, didn't have one person who either supported or identified 
as some sort of other form of sexuality, reject or leave because of the biblical view of human relationship. But there's a reason for that, and the reason has a lot to do with why we've been having issues over uh, uh, recent decades with addressing these questions. And that's because we've not fully defined. We've been correct. Yes, homosexuality is wrong. The Bible does condemn it. And we will look at a few verses that clarify that. But instead of going to fully to what the Bible says, fully to the narrow definition that the Bible has on what is the correct view, we essentially left it as homosexuality and now transgenderism and all these other things. Those are incorrect and kind of left it that heterosexuality is the correct one. But that's not the narrow definition that the Bible gives. That is not, that still covers, in that realm, actually covers more, more sins than what we've already condemned. We cut off rightly part of it, but we didn't go all the way. We didn't go to what the Bible's narrow definition is because the Bible has a more narrow definition. And I'm not even just talking about, uh, uh, you know, you can't sleep with your girlfriend. It is more narrow than that. And for a specific reason, because God's definition is not a road. God's definition is a singular line. It is one thing. That's why Christ is so straightforward. That's why Christ is so uh, uh, easily answers this and ties it to God. So let's dive into what God says about marriage, what it's supposed to be, how we, how we as husbands, how wives are supposed to engage in this relationship. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Again, this Christ who already spoke on marriage, that we started with that, that uh, passage from Matthew. Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
We're going to stop there for just a second before we read the second half. The second half is what I'm more focused on, but it's important to see, and so many sermons are done on this passage. So many sermons are done on the first part, but it's all about addressing what does it mean that wives submit to the husband? What does it mean that husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church? But because we've lived in a society that's so split on the issues of men and women and the roles, therefore, uh, that they have, we're missing the point that's actually being made here in saying those things. What Christ is saying is that marriage is based off of his relationship with the church. And you cannot approach this passage correctly in its fullness until you first look at it from that angle. He's not primarily commenting on husbands and wives. He's primarily attaching the marriage relationship to the relationship of Christ and his church. That's why he goes into things such as not just uh, husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But the next part, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot. Uh, There is a relationship dynamic that is being established here. That marriage is supposed to be based off of another relationship, and that relationship, again, is Christ and his church. Until you get that you're going to be lost in all of the questions because there's so many questions you can ask in regards to the issues of marriage and human sexuality. But once you understand that it's defined by an immutable, unchangeable thing, not just that uh, uh, marriage is supposed to be permanent, not just that it's supposed to be a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one flesh, but it's defined by Christ himself. Do you understand this? This is not something that we can disagree on because it's firmly rooted in Christ himself, in his relationship. And unfortunately, Christ cannot suddenly decide that he wants to be the church and transition what he is. Christ cannot be married to Christ. The church cannot be married to the church. The church cannot be married both to the church and to Christ. It is defined by Christ himself. It is defined uh, by... by his relationship with the church. (coughs) And it's important to establish from this, this first part of this passage. But now let's continue on. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Interesting, that's quoted again. This mystery is profound, 
And I am saying that it reflects, it refers, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This mystery is profound. What we've been given is something bigger than, greater than just a simple relationship. The attaching of this relationship to the relationship of Christ and his church, the attaching of that creates this, this mystery in it. That it's something so much more than we can even understand. That's the idea of mystery uh, that Paul's getting at here. AKA, guys, this is your relationship, you and your wife. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than you and your wife. Also, marriage itself is bigger than you. Guys, this is important. This is a very, very important thing. But let's continue on. Let's get some more bones to the, these ideas. Uh, things that are being talked about here. How things are supposed to operate. And let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5. And this is where we'll get some uh, uh, very specific pictures of uh, certain things about the marriage relationship that will really help us to understand the errors. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The main point I want to get out of this is he's saying something very important that we might read a little bit too quickly, or we might get caught up on the beginning and not notice what's actually saying. But in verse 4, Paul's telling us that it's not about you. Yeah. It's not about you. In this marriage relationship, in all aspects, Paul's going to the physical, but in all aspects, it's not about you. It's about the other. That was already drawn out in that verse in Ephesians we read. But we may not have quite noticed it. Because again, we get caught up in the idea of, oh, what does it actually mean that a wife is supposed to submit to her husband? Oh, what does it actually mean that a husband is supposed to love his wife like Christ loves the church? No, do you not understand the point there? They're each being put to the focus of the other. And here, Paul attaches it to the physical as well. Your priority is not your own good, quote, good. Your own, uh, 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 what you can get out of things. It's about the other person. You, as a married person, it's about your spouse in all things. All things. You're not here in this relationship to make yourself feel better. 
you're here for the other person. Marriage relationship is not a balance of uh, uh, who's giving what to whom, uh, who's uh, taking part in the relationship. No. Your role is 100% about the other person, regardless of what they're doing. Regardless of what they're doing. We don't have time to look at it, so I didn't quote any of it, but that's one of the whole points that God makes about his relationship with Israel. That the covenants he made with them, that the vows he made to them, outmatch anything they can do. That's the whole point of the story of Hosea, where it becomes very literal as God has him continuously have to chase after a unfaithful wife. And Hosea has to be 100% committed regardless of her and what she's doing. That is the commitment we've made because that is the commitment that Christ has made to us. Do you understand that? That's the commitment that Christ has made to us. His church. And that's the commitment we're supposed to have to one another, to our spouses. It's not selfishness. It's not what you can get out of the relationship in any aspect of the relationship. It's about giving to the other. Giving like Christ gives to his church. Giving like the church gives to Christ. In the realm of the physical, that means you focus on the other person, not you. Now, let's look at some warnings. I think we've got enough of a definition of different pieces of marriage. So let's look at some warnings against problems that can arise. 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. There are things that the world are going to teach, and they're not from God. What are these things? What are uh, uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life? 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. That should sound very similar to something that will come up a chapter later in Corinthians that we just read. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we just added more to what we already learned, but we also added a new dimension because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes it clear that when you sin against your body, and specifically you sin against your body in this area, 
You're defiling God's temple. So again, want to talk about the seriousness that God places on both marriage and uh, sexuality? He's attaching it to his temple. And again, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you need more emphasis on what we just read about uh, the wife's body is not her own, but the husband's, the husband's body is not her own, but the wife's? Again, Paul emphasizes that more by attaching that. You are not your own. He attaches that to our being bought by Christ's sacrifice. So we glorify God in this body. We give to him. God's painting a beautiful picture of something that's supposed to be good. Supposed to be so good that it is a reflection of Christ and his church. It's a reflection of something so magnificent. As we read in 1 Peter something that even angels longed to look into, the redemption of mankind by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let's continue on with some of the bad news. I'm sorry, but there is bad news attached to this, because if there is a right, there is also a wrong. So again, from 1 Corinthians, six, chapter 6, 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Many, many a phenomenal sermon has been preached from verse 11. And almost all of them are always titled, And Such Were Some of You. Uh, But notice in the list of unrighteousness that will not see the kingdom of heaven, not that these sins disqualify you. Jesus, or Paul makes that very clear in the end, that some of you were this, but Jesus washed you. But three times in this list are mentioned uh, different forms of sexual immorality. Again, it's a serious issue, and God wants to make it clear that it's not just one thing, that you cannot weasel your way into allowing some of these sins, that they are all condemnable and all in the same way, that there is such a narrow definition that as soon as you get a little bit off of it, you're into bad territory. But let's have one more uh, verse, just to really nail it down, one more passage on the bad news. Uh, uh, the condemnation of things. Romans 1, 25 through 27. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now this is from a section in the beginning of Romans where Paul is kind of tracing the story of humanity and the fall into depravity before he is going to bring it around to the solution. But he makes it very clear that as people fall away from God, as the society moves away from God, one of the prime areas that we will see is a downgrade in their view of marriage, a downgrade in their view of uh, right sexuality as they seek their own, their own passions, their own desires, their own uh, uh, good. They live for themselves alone. Remember what had already been said, you're not your own, you belong to Christ. You're not your own, you're for your spouse. It's selflessness, 100%, not selfishness. And if you can't tell, that's really the heart of this issue, is selfishness versus selflessness. Let's talk to, to us a little bit on some of this, though. 1 John 2, 3 through 4, because I think at this point, a lot of us can go, yeah, that's great. This is, this is how I want to live. This is how I want to live in my marriage. Let's start talking to that a little bit. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, to know Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, continuing that whole idea of seriousness in regards to these things. Christ has already made it abundantly clear that, by the way, marriage is attached to me and my relationship with my church. It is immutable. It is unchangeable. It is defined. Clearly and narrowly defined. So if you want to know him, or if you want to claim to know him, you keep his commandments. And his commandments on marriage are very clear. His commandments on human relationships are very clear. And we need to keep them. And I think we can all be in agreement with that. I don't think that's a, a revolutionary thing to say. But let's continue on to the next, the next couple steps. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Again, one last note on the seriousness 
that God takes this, the seriousness that God places on this. And we're going to do one more verse, and then we're going to come to a, a clear definition on things, a concise definition on things. And the last verse is where it kind of hits us a little bit. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When it comes to sexuality, all of us are broken. We are all sinful, we are all fallen, and we all come from an, a place where we're unrepentant, where none of our desires naturally aligned with God where we get none of it right, at least not intentionally. We might cross upon the truth for a moment, but we will slip away again. But we've been saved, we've been redeemed, but we're still in this fallen body. So guess what that means? We're not free from, we're not free from the flesh. And it's going to come after us all. It also means that none of us, we're all, who, okay, who here can say that they're not selfish? So guess what? You're still broken in this area. You're still broken in this area. You do not naturally line up with and keep God's commandments when it comes to marriage and human sexuality. Again, not naturally. But God is good, and if we obey his commandments and follow him, if we are seeking to grow in him, though there will be bumps in the road, I think we can all admit that. I've only been married for about five years, but there are always bumps in the road. Always bumps in the road. None of us get it right at every moment. But that's a warning to us that this definition of marriage is so very narrow that even us who seek to follow Christ are not going to get it right 100%. So we have to have our defenses up. There's so many other verses I wanted to include in this to really create even a larger, more robust picture. But we really don't have the time not in one message. And there's specific points I want to get across. So let's come to a definition. Let's come to a definition of marriage and also one that explains uh, uh, sexuality and explains why all these other forms are wrong. God's definition for marriage is not, again, it's mentioned this already, it's not heterosexuality. It's not that a man and a woman should come together. It's that uh, uh, 
There should be, a, honestly, we in the church should come up with a term for this. It's not, again, heterosexuality, but it's marriage. It's husband for wife. It's not man for woman. It's not man for man. It's not man who thinks he's woman for something else. It's, I don't say that to be like rude or dismissive. I just, I literally cannot keep up with the different definitions that people have. Uh, but it's supposed to be husband and wife. That is, that is what our sexual orientation is supposed to be. If you want to put it in the, in the worldly terms of orientation, again, it's not heterosexuality. It's husband and wife sexuality. That is our orientation. That is where we are called to sit. And beyond that, it's not even a, a, a worldly view of that, a worldly view of, because there's people in the world that are still monogamous, that are still married, but it's husband for wife, wife for husband. It's selfless marriage. So again, can you see how that takes the definition, cuts out homosexuality, cuts out heterosexuality, even cuts out uh, a selfish monogamous marriage and leaves it so very narrow. So very narrow. And when you cut through the fat of all of it that the world argues about, then unfortunately so many churches have started to argue about and go, well, can we really say this about that? Well, what can we, is there a little bit room for grace there? I'm sorry, grace is not, Paul addressed this, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is not an excuse to, to sin. Uh, but when you cut through all of that, you go straight to that incredibly precise, narrow definition of human sexuality. And you tell that to someone who identifies as some sort of different sexuality, it really takes the teeth out of them. Because suddenly you have just, you haven't condemned them, you've condemned the majority of people to a large degree, even to a point where you self-incriminate because we don't perfectly align to that. And that is really the focus we need to have is Christ has made this so narrow based on him, his relationship, that it is self-sacrificial, self uh, uh, well, it's not about self, it's about the other. To the point where even we who are redeemed still have to work to be on the right path. We have to work against our selfish nature to give to our spouse. Not just in the realm of sexuality, in general, everything, to make everything not about them in a, a, there's a wrong way you can do that too, but everything about them in the way that you're, that Christ serves his church and his church serves him. Obviously Christ takes care of himself and the church takes care of itself, but they give to each other. 
They're selfless for one another. So when we step into this realm of uh, uh, the modern LGBTQ uh, plus movement, we need to make sure that we have a very clear view, not just a, a somewhat clear view. We have to take all mud out of the water. So that is crystal clear. And when it is crystal clear, it makes it so much easier to talk with these people. So much easier to talk with people who disagree with us. And that's where we need to sit. We need to have that clear view of marriage. We need to live that out. So step new. Step one, have the right view. Step two, live it out. Then step three, talk with those who are outside. Not about marriage or human sexuality, but about Christ. Because he is the one who changed all of us. Who helps us in this area to find the truth that he set out for us that is so good, so good. The purpose for human relationship. But if they have questions, you now have the tools to answer them clearly, super clearly, without question. And again, obviously there's gonna be people that just wanna be offended no matter what, no matter what. But for most people, when you present them that clear definition, it takes the teeth right out of them. It really does. And then you can get to a, a get past that conversation and get back to Christ. And when you're talking about marriage as centered on Christ's relationship with the church, guess what? You've already got the bridge to talk about Christ and his church. Marriage is a representation of the gospel. Do you not understand that? If it's about Christ and his church, then it, it cannot be separated from the gospel. It's part of living out the new life we have. This is why we cannot compromise on it. When we compromise on it, we're even compromising on the gospel, not the direct teaching of the gospel that it's by Christ you're saved, by his death, burial, and resurrection that you're saved, but we are stepping on the feet, muddling, mudding up the waters on something that should be very clear. Now let's end with a couple verses on that note. Revelations 19, 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. At the end of the age, we will sit at table for the final feast with Christ, where his church is joined to him forever. Again, that's the permanency of marriage. It's based on the fact that we're going to be eternally with Christ. If we marriage, make marriage anything less than permanent, we've just compromised what eternity is. If we make marriage as defined anything other than God's super narrow definition, we've just affected 
Christ and his church, the coming together in the end, the culmination of the salvific work that he set out to do, the culmination of the gospel. We cannot compromise on this. We talked about, in the end of 2 Peter, uh, uh, kind of how we address false teaching. We talked a little bit about the idea of uh, what is a vital issue? What is something that we, we have to call out? And this, a correct view of sexuality and a correct view of marriage, is one of those issues that we cannot compromise on in the church with one another because it's attached directly to Christ, his relationship with the church, and ultimately the gospel itself. When you change any of that, you're affecting the essential beliefs of Christianity. Because marriage is a reflection of many of those essential beliefs. Beyond the fact you can't change any of it without denying the Bible. Because we only looked at a few selection of verses, but I think you can see how clear they are. Especially when you start to put them together, the definition that it creates. And let's end with one last verse, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Christ will not change, ever. His word will not change, ever. The definition of marriage will not change, ever. The gospel will not change ever. Our status as saved individuals will not change. Christ is not just going to decide one day that, oh, well, you know what? I guess those I'm not gonna bring those people into my kingdom in the end. No, he will. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we can trust him. And because of trusting him, we have to rest firmly on what he says about marriage, the relationship of a man and a woman, what it's supposed to look like, the coming together that he defined, and why the world, lost in its sin, lost in its selfishness, is always going to go away from that. If they reject the gospel, if the gospel is a stumbling block to them, if they think it is offense, then they're going to reject what? Things that are reflections of Christ's relationship with his church. They're going to reject what the Bible has to say about marriage. And that is why we see this society just veering off and running away from it as fast as they can, seemingly making up day by day new sins to commit against Christ in this area. And that's so sad, and that should break our hearts. And in the end, getting this right is a call to spread the gospel to those who are lost in destruction, in uh, selfishness. Getting this right is loving the broken. Compromising on this is not loving them. It's to hate them because we're not giving them the truth. So in conclusion, God has a very specific view on this issue and it is good. It's 
as good as it can possibly be because it is based on the greatest thing in all of history. And that is God himself saving those who have rebelled against him. The good news. The good news that we rejoice and celebrate next week when we remember the resurrection of Jesus. The good news that brought Christ to the cross this Friday. Why, even though it's the most scandalous, tragic thing in all of human history, we can call it good because Christ had victory in it. The good news that took Christ through the gates of Jerusalem on this day, or at least this is the day we remember it. I bet you didn't think I would get that in there in a message about (laughs) sexuality and marriage, but it is true because all of these things are based on that message. And it is so good. And let us have joy in that good, in that good design that God has given us, and that salvation. That reminder every day. Every day you interact with your spouse is a reminder of the gospel. Every day you engage in that marriage relationship, you spend time with your spouse, you discuss with them, you do anything with them. It's a reminder of the fellowship we now have with Christ. Let's not compromise that. Now, if you bow with me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord God,